Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wet Boots Podcast, where I talk to people that are in or have been in the military and get a chance to hear their story. I'm very excited about my guest today, and I swear to God, I say that about all my guests, but I really mean it today. Uh, my guest today is the smoothest peanut butter. God damn, he really is. He's a tall drink of water, and... Overall, one of the most authentic leaders that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, please welcome my guest today, fucking Mr. Major Neil Smythe, baby. Settle down, settle down, settle down, everybody. Probably the settle nicest down. 10 seconds everybody's ever S- Whoa, settle me. down. All right, settle down. Calm down. All right, one more time. All right, settle down. Calm the fuck down. All right. Jesus. All right. Thank I you, know bro. he's smooth. <laughs> I know you. he's handsome. I know he's a, ha- a tall drink of water. <laughs> Neil Smythe, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've had such an amazing career and uh, you've gotten so far. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you started. Well, first, thank you. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's probably the nicest 30 seconds of my life that I've just had. Um, so, yeah, man, it's it's funny how time flies. So um, April of this year marked 21 years that I've been in the army. 21 years 20 and years. loving every second of it, huh? Well, I'm still having fun. People ask me all the time, when am I going to retire? I say when I'm when I stop having fun. Yeah, and that that point hasn't hasn't happened yet. Um, so I've never adulted out in the real world before. I. Uh, Grew up in Oakland, California. Graduated high school in 2002. Shout out to the Raiders. Yeah, it's uh, it's an adventure. We'll see what Jimmy G does this year. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> it's a sad, sad existence. <laughs> I feel like all of us Raider fans are just masochists and just love just being miserable for the fall. And you know what? Don't take offense to this, but Raider fans are kind of like juggalos. Fair. Okay. In the sense that they okay. will just, they're just ride or die. Interesting. Yeah. No, no, no. We are a weird cult. Yeah. Like psychopaths. No, no, no. Yeah. That's actually an apt comparison. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's like permanent resiliency training. Like yeah. I feel like as a Raider fan, you are constantly training yourself to deal with failure <laughs> and bouncing back from it. You know, we're, we're not spoiled. We're not a spoiled fan base. Um, so yeah, so I, I, you know, early life. Yeah. I grew up in Oakland and then, uh, my sister enlisted in the army in 2001. So she was a year older than I was. Um, and so I knew that the army was an option. I was not <clears throat> not very self-aware, but self-aware enough to know that I would have failed my way out of college had I actually tried to go straight from high school to college. Um, I was very immature. Um, as we all are. As we all are, especially Coming at 17. In. Yeah. It, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. Um, 9-11 happened during my senior year, and so there was a very petty and, you know, kind of macho ego part of me that felt like, Hey, some group of people had the nerve to do this to us. I need to be a part of the clapback. You know what I mean? Like I need to, I need to be on team America and, and go get some. So I, I very much thought of the army as an option. And so, yeah, in April of 2002, had my parents sign a waiver, you know, saying that, Hey, 17 year old can go join the army. And so, yeah, by October of 2002, I was in relaxing Jackson, Fort Jackson, South Ooh, Carolina, relaxing Jackson, baby. Getting it. Um, yeah, yeah. October of 2002, I was in basic training. And it was it was the first time I'd been on an airplane. You know, that, that typical kind of cliche story, right? Kids, yeah. First time traveling, first time, you know, leaving the state of California. So I'm having to, like, find myself thrust into an environment where I'm not in control and there is no out. There is no just quitting. No. I've been on, you know, I played football throughout throughout high school. So, I mean, it was there was a certain barracks locker room kind of, you know, com- 
it was a comp that I think people make a lot of times if you play sports, then, you know, the army kind of makes sense. But there's something totally different when you don't get to control when you eat, when you go Ew. to sleep. Um, you know, like football practice ends at some point. Yeah. Uh, that's not the case for, for the army. Not basic training. No, no. And, uh, and I still hadn't stripped away a lot of individuality, swag, and cockiness that all 17-year-olds kind of have. You still haven't. Um, yeah. And, and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now I've just been lucky enough to stick around long enough that nobody tells the major that they're being an idiot. Um, but, yeah, at the time I was... I was the the quintessential like cocky problem private like. So that you was, came in as an enlisted folk. Yep, yep. So I was rocking my BDUs, getting it in, shining boots, like oh, all the damn. yeah, yeah. People don't even shine boots anymore. Like, no, they don't. I feel like Kiwi as a brand has probably gone out of business. <laughs> like, what do they even make or do that people buy? I feel like the army kept Kiwi afloat, and now that we don't shine boots anymore, I, it's like a failed enterprise. Like I don't know, I don't know who's buying shoe shining polish anymore. But uh, but yeah, yeah. So I was. Um, I finished basic training and then came here to good old now Fort Liberty at the time Fort Bragg. So I will still call it Fort Bragg. I will one hundred percent call it Fort okay, Bragg. Okay, cool, cool. Because no, no, no. Liberty thing, right? Yeah, like, we're not doing the Fort Liberty thing. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> good. good Longstreet is still Longstreet. What the hell is Riley called okay. now? Okay, I don't fucking know. Mount, but Longstreet Mount is something. But Longstreet is like Longstreet Street. Absolutely not. Yes. Longstreet <laughs> is fucking Longstreet. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we're not we're not doing the name change stuff. <laughs> no, I, absolutely. I, it's still not. Riley Road. Like I, I don't I don't know what what things have changed to, but. Um, especially because we're talking in the past. So, yes, at the time, it was very much Fort Bragg. So, yeah, I came, oh, to, came to Fort Bragg in uh, January of 03 to start AIT um, as a civil affairs specialist. Whoo! That's yeah. what I'm talking about, baby. Yeah, it was... Canco! <laughs> it was... I, I was I was one of them. Um, I was one of you. It was an interesting <laughs> experience because I, I didn't know what the job was, and I mm -hmm. think that's kind of apropos. I think a lot of people going through SWIC right now have no idea what the job is. Um, but, you know, I can apply a little bit of perspective of getting a VHS put into a VCR and my recruiter saying, I have no idea what these people do, but in this video they have like little teal berets on or whatever. They were, it was a UN like mission in Bosnia and they were showing me like dudes in BDUs with baby blue berets doing, I guess they were KLEs. And I was like, so wait, what's their job? And the recruiter goes, I have no idea. I think it's just to talk to people. I was like, dope, dope, dope. Yeah, that's right up my alley. Okay, Which when you when you subtract our job, it really is just talking to people. Yeah. It really is. Don't be a douche. Build relationships. That's all it is. Get people to call you back and want to be your friend. Yeah. Whether we didn't at the time, there was no doctrine. We didn't have technology. I think we've created a bunch of doctrine and a bunch of acronyms that we've layered on top of things to sound super legit. But at the end of the day, the job is the job. Yeah. Be friends with people. Don't be an asshole. Get people to want to call you back and be closer to your friend than someone else's. Right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's at the end of the day that foundationally the job is the same. Yeah. And so I was like, sure, I'll go do that thing. Um, and yeah, where I think the barracks have gotten torn down, refurbished. I don't even know what they are now, but there's AIT barracks across the street from Bank Hall that I've waxed that floor countless times. Um, used to sneak over to the mini mall. And this is just how stupid I was, right? But like thought I was being slick because I was a cocky idiot. Um, me and my battle buddy were like, all right, look, like we want to go like buy stuff from like the mini mall, right? And at the time, the class six was on the on the outside. It yeah. was like in a, it was like kind of where like Starbucks is, right? It was like yeah. outside. I think there was like a mattress store, a furniture store, something else over there. And so we took our two court canteens off, threw them in a bush over by the Airborne Inn, took our PT belts off, ditched them, 
thought that, okay, cool, now we'll blend in because those are the <laughs> only things that like highlight us as AIT students, right? So now let's be cool and let's walk over and let's go buy stuff, right? Having no concept of, bro, you don't have patches on. Oh, you sure. are wearing soft caps. This oh. is a maroon beret installation. Everyone knew exactly who we were and like had that look on their face of, we're your adults. They're drill sergeants. <laughs> Why are these privates like? Wh what are you guys doing right now? Oh, shit. Everyone, we're like, what? Like we're totally playing it cool. Like why is everybody <laughs> looking at us? But yeah, I mean that that just further highlights just my headspace at the time yeah. of thinking that I could get away with stuff, trying to be slick, like the quintessential irresponsible, immature. You were the problem child. I was time. that guy. Like I look at myself now and I go. I totally would have built a counseling packet on Specialist Mike. Like I would have put Specialist Mike the hell out of the army. He was awful, right? Like I was, I was atrocious. But um, here you are now. It's twenty-one so years later. So I was joking, say the cracks in the army promotion system are as wide as a Grand Canyon. Like I don't know how how, how I got to where I am. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think a lot of those, a lot of those early years were were very, were very informative. I think they were transformative and they, they built me to, to where I am now. And a lot of the way that I see the army and the way that I see people, the way that I interact with people, um, were shaped by a lot of the stumbles and mistakes that I made along the way. By no means was I perfect. Um, and I think I use a lot of that imperfection to kind of, you know, see imperfections in others, be empathetic and kind of, you know, the way that I, the way that I approach and deal with people, I think is shaped which, knowing that I was bad. Which was as bad. you should, because, um, uh, as a, as a, as a junior dude coming up, I, I realized that there was a lot of leaders around me and I, I realized that sometimes there's good leaders and there's bad leaders and you, you got to take this, the good stuff from the good leaders, the bad stuff from the bad leaders and kind of mush that up and realize this is what I don't want to be from the bad leaders and this is what I really do want to be from the good leaders which helps us kind of mold who we are as leaders in the future and helps us kind of change that climate down as as we come up in the ranks um, but you, uh, but let's go back you graduated uh, you, you enrolled in the army in 2002 which probably a lot of people were not alive for <laughs> which to be honest that we sucks. know a couple people that were not alive for that shout out to the old guys listening to this and watching this <laughs> do you remember the year of our lord 2002 but okay true, true. shout out to, to <laughs> the year of the lord 2002 <laughs> yeah, 9-11 played a role in realizing you you enlisted as reserves originally a ca yep and um tell me what uh 2003 was like so that year was it was it was crazy. So we we were one of those weird, and they always say the problem class of any AIT, the ones that do basic training, go home for the Christmas holiday, and then start AIT in the beginning of the year. Um, so we were that class. So we started January of '03, and uh, while we were in AIT, the war in Iraq started. So oh shit, this whole thing, you know, of hey, nine eleven happened. A lot of us, you know, signed up and wanted to do something about it. At the time, it was all centered around Afghanistan and bin Laden, and specifically in response to, to the Twin Towers being knocked down and, and the events um, on September 11th. And so when Iraq started, it was during a mail call that I remember the, the drill sergeant kind of announcing to us that, oh, by the way, like Operation Shock and Awe has begun. And we were like, where's that at? And they're like, oh, it's happening in Iraq right now. It's happening right now. Right now. And so we're sitting there. Yeah, this was in March of, of 2003. We didn't graduate until April. And so we all kind of looked at each other like, 
oh, so we definitely going somewhere, right? Yeah. And that's how it ended up working out. Half of our class went to OAF one. The other half of us went to OAF two. Oh shit! Um, and so I was in the half that was going to have to go to OAF two. And so we just kind of knew that, like, yeah, this this idea that we're one week in a month, two weeks a year like went out the window. Time. Yeah, it completely went out the window because there was just no room for it. And at the time, there wasn't an active duty CA force that was able to go to all places all at the same time. And so we're like, well, all of us in use of KPOC, like it's time to, to get it. I realized that I was much luckier than some of the people in my AIT class because a lot of older guys that were very much professionals already, stockbrokers, engineers, people that were motivated by the 9-11 attacks and wanted to, you know, do their part. But they had careers. They had families. Um, I was a kid that didn't have any skills, so to speak, right? I had no career, no family, no anything. So it was kind of like, well, I'm just going to do what the Army tells me to do. So it quickly went from one toe in the water, immature kid, not sure what he wants to do as a reservist, to, oh, I'm going to have to do this all the time. Like, this is now going to be a full-time train-up preparation yeah. and go to a country that, at the time that I raised my right hand, we weren't at war with, but we are now. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of was quickly tuning me into what was to come and needing to be much more serious than I think I had been up until that point. I think I had been kind of um, kind of just nonchalant through a lot of the stuff that I was doing. Kind of had that feeling of, well, my sister did all this stuff. I can do it too, right? Yeah. She went to basic. She went to AIT. Cool. All right. I can do that. You know, physically, okay, this is fine. Ah, somebody's screaming at me. Whatever. Um, but I think the knowledge that inevitably I am going to one of those two combat zones in a non sit behind a desk kind of role. Right. <laughs> I think it, it, it forced me to mature much faster than I think I would have, if not for those events. So, and, and as these things kind of happen, mm -hmm. right. As, as these things kind of happen and you don't really find it, find who you are or how you lead or how you are until you're put into uh, that that situation when everything sucks, when shit hits the fan, and that's when you realize who you are. And so, at this point, you are deployed already, yeah. right? So we're we're around like a year and a half, two years out, out of you joining, and you're already in Afghanistan or Iraq. I was in Fallujah, Iraq. God damn! So, yeah. so, so, tell me about that. So, t tell me about what happened there. So. I mean, obviously, everyone is much more responsible and prepared now. We do a lot of pre-mission planning and understanding of where you're going. Yeah, full disclosure, I had no idea where that place was on a map. Um, <laughs> I knew that I was going to Iraq, but I didn't know the backstory of Fallujah, what had kind of led up to where we were at that time in the summer of 2004, what was going to come um, after that. I just knew my NCOs and officers told me to get my stuff together, and I was going. Yeah. Um, and so I was still very very caught up in myself. They say that, you know, the army strips away whatever, you know, uh, things, baggage that you might bring with you. Everybody's army green and, you know, you're part of one team. There's no individualism, individuality, things like that don't exist. Um, I hadn't completely gotten out of that headspace. I was very much like, you know, hey, I'm me. I'm my own unique, you know, special snowflake. I will, you know, do the best that I can, but I'm going to swag the way that I want to. I'm not going to be like, you know, the traditional like soldier, like high and tight are not my thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I still felt like I could be me, the normal version of me. You still felt like a people. I still absolutely <laughs> felt like a people, right? Um, and that was just because I was, you know, cocky and immature. That deployment changed all of that. Really? Um, I think I I had an ex it was very early on. Um, I think we were we were getting ready. The the 
ultimately the, the battle of Fallujah started in November, but we had been there for a few months and we were kind of doing like feints and kind of other stuff, just kind of like do a recon to the city and stuff. And we started getting shot at. And I remember this very petty, immature emotion, like coming over me of like, how dare they like, bro, like, you're, why, why are you shooting at me? Like, bro, I'm cool. Like, if you knew me, you would like me. Why am, why, why are you shooting at me, bro? I didn't do nothing to you. You don't even know me. Like, if you knew me, you wouldn't be doing this. And it was, and it took longer than you would imagine for me to snap out of it. But I swear, I sat there in the gun behind a two, behind, seriously, behind a 240 in a gun of a Humvee going, unbelievable. Like, how... <laughs> How dare they? Um, and we, we get back. Oh, and I remember just like thinking to myself, like, oh, wait. Like, look at the flag that's on my shoulder yeah. right now. Look, I'm wearing D these DCUs. Like, I'm an American soldier. Oh, <laughs> this is like a whole war and stuff. Yeah. And like, oh, snap. Oh, and it got nothing to do with me. So when it way above a yeah. personal level. Exactly. It made me realize like, <laughs> oh. It's gonna be like this all the time. Like, and it ain't got nothing to do with me as an individual human. I can be as nice as I wanna be, you know, chill and make jokes and be all the big funny guy, right? It don't matter. <laughs> and none of it matters. And I'm like, oh. Oh, that's why we do the things the way that we do. That's why I have to listen to my NCOs. That's why we give, you know, the officers give the plans, give the orders. That's why we trained for months and months and months before we got here. That's why we do things a very specific way. Oh, this is an organization that is bigger than myself. Like this is a cause that is bigger than myself. I am just a hopefully productive contributing member of this organization. And I'm going to do my best and, you know, work the best that I can and have others believe in me and trust in me. But this isn't about me. Like this isn't a me thing. And I think for the first time in my life, it was that deployment that I realized that I actually liked that. Like I enjoyed okay. being a part of something that was um, larger than myself and that everybody to our left and to our right, like it was understood that we are going to see bad days. We are going to see very terrible times, but because we trust in one another, we've trained for this and we believe in what the other person and those appointed over us are saying and what we're doing, um, we'll be able to make it home and we'll be okay. And so it was during that deployment that I realized like, okay, I'm not in pursuit of finding myself and what career am I going to, you know, try to go into when I get out of this deployment and go back to being a reservist? Am I going to go to school? Am I going to go try to do something? I knew at that point that, okay, the army is the thing that I'm going to do because I actually enjoy this. Like I like that. And this feeling is new to me and it's something that I want to pursue and continue having for, for years. And it was because of the fact that when you're deployed or when you're just in the suck, mm -hmm. you're not really doing it for yourself. You're, exactly. you're hanging on for lack of better terms. You're hanging on for those to left and right of you. Uh, you can't, you could complain, but is it going to make the, the climate different? Is it going to help your battle buddies out? Like a better terms, I hate the word battle buddy, but um, in reality, that's what it really is. That's what it yeah. really comes down to. Yeah. Um, are you going to help your, your, your buddy to your left and your right? Big army wise and all that stuff um, kind of goes out the window. Yeah. And you're there for your buddies and that's, what it really comes down to when you're in, uh, like you said, Fallujah, <laughs> you're personally offended by these guys shooting at you. Wow. <laughs> you're personally, how dare they, <laughs> but you embrace and understood the way the army does things, uh, through the training. And then the, why the questioning 
just kind of went out the window, which we all kind of at some point realized that, hey, the army does things for a reason. This is why. Um, and you trust the leaders that uh, the army is appointed over you. Is it always a right? Is it always the right call? Probably not. No, no. There's, to be there's, honest. Yeah, there's there's plenty of times that, that leaders are unprepared, ill-informed about the mission. Most importantly, ill-informed about their people. They don't know the people. They don't know what's what pushes their buttons. They don't know what, how to get the most out of their soldiers and inspire them to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do themselves. Right. Um, so by no means am I saying that just blanketly across the board, if the army is determined that you should be of a certain rank or in a certain position that you're obviously infallible and you can do no wrong. But I think that in the moment that I was in with that team and during that deployment, I had seen the NCOs that were over me, right? It's a whole different army. I was in E4 I thought E5s and E6s were scary. I wouldn't even look at an E7 in the eyes. And God help me if I'm even in the same vicinity as an officer, whatever I'm going to do is probably wrong, right? Yeah. So this was like a different time. I mean, we're now, you know, not like the back in my day stuff, but like now, I mean, like people are much more casual. But it's, but it's because of the fact that uh, people like you mm. grew, grew up in that, uh, uh, in that climate yeah. of like, hey, the E6s, E7s and officers are scary as shit. Yep. Uh, I wouldn't even fucking dare to look at them. Yep. And goddamn if I did. Yeah. And I'm probably in trouble if if that's happening. Yeah, you're if, probably if in me trouble and if you did. Having a conversation, I probably screwed something. A hundred percent. But it's it's that it's a climate of I went through that. I don't want my guys to go through that. Big facts. So that is one of the things that shaped me because what it what it felt like to me was we were stifling creativity, growth as an organization, good ideas, things that could have been transformative and innovative in the way that we were doing things because we were telling an entire segment of our organization that they weren't allowed to have a voice, that their opinions didn't matter due to their rank and inexperience and age or whatever the reason. Um, only a select few groups, group of people that have made it to a certain point are allowed to have input ideas and contribute to the mission and the conversation. And, I didn't like that. Yeah. And, and and it's because I was cocky and I felt like I knew things. I felt like, hey, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm smarter than a few of them. But they get a voice. I don't. And it's only because of the rank at the time. But that's on my collar. Right. So it's like because I'm a specialist, I have to just shut up, make sure that the vehicles are filled up. The, you know, comsec is filled, that we're all able to talk. I got to make sure that, you know, I PMCS. I do, I do all of these things. Sure, sure, sure. I can knock that out real quick. But I'd like to go listen to you guys strategizing about what we should do for projects and other things in Fallujah after the battle. I'd like to go talk about other kinds of things, right? I grew up in a rough city. I have ideas of what maybe the population would like, what they wouldn't, kind of maybe how I would feel in my neighborhood back home, like yeah. people came through. Um, and thankfully, that team allowed me the space to do that. Um, it was very much against the grain. There were plenty of times that I was sitting in meetings that I had to be introduced as the note taker but it was so that I could hear and kind of see what was going on and like, you know, be a part of idea sharing and stuff with my, with my team leadership. Um, but I, but I appreciated that about that group of people that I was with on that deployment. And I, and I saw that them providing a platform for everyone in the organization to have ownership of the mission and to participate and to be contributing members of problem solving brought the most out of everyone. It, it made everyone have buy-in and made everyone deal with this suck in their own way, but they had ownership of what we were doing as a collective and a part of that thing that is bigger than themselves. Right. Um, and so I very much took that as like, okay, 
moving forward, as I've decided that I want to do this army thing, you know, as a career, this will be something that I, that I will want to replicate and have be a part of every organization that I can impact. So every leadership position that I wanted to be in after that, I knew that one of the first things that I have to do is make everyone feel empowered, make everyone feel like their voice matters, their opinions matter. Yes. Final decision authority rests with whoever's in charge. Yeah. But, um, that decision becomes much more palatable if everyone feels like they had a vote. They had a say in what happened. They shared their ideas for reasons that they might not understand. We're not going to go that direction because, hey, you know, the commander doesn't want to assume risk for this, 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 and this reason. Hey, I see that idea. It makes sense. But here are the second and third order consequences that maybe if we go down that path, so maybe we have, you know, another way that we should go about doing this. And then so you're also teaching, you're you're empowering, and I think you're you're getting people to buy into the group more than just kind of, oh, hey, well, I'm an E3, I'm best seen and not heard. Um, I didn't like that, and so I've, I haven't tried to, I've tried not to do that in any organization I've been in. And is that collective thinking, that, that collective thought and input, was that, was that what made you want to go green to gold? Yes. Um, because at the time I didn't think that there was an institutional change and, you know, some massive paradigm shift that the army was going to undertake. That was all of a sudden going to allow a newly promoted E5 upon redeployment is when I got promoted to E5. Like the army wasn't going to all of a sudden decide that, you know, we need to start letting E5s be a part of like op order briefings. We need to start letting E5s like, you know, share their ideas with the battalion commander before we initiate operations. That wasn't going to happen. So the only way that I saw that, hey, I want my voice to be a part of decision making because I feel like I have one and it's what keeps me engaged and really enjoying what I'm doing was I need to become an officer. Like, so I need to find a way to go do that so that I can have a seat at the table and I can be excited and challenged intellectually to come up with solutions to problems and be a part of, you know, larger scale change. And the two O fours that I had with me in my company, my team leader who was an O four and then our company commander, I looked at our company commander and was like, I want that guy's job. Like major Warbox job is cool. Like he has a bunch of CA teams that are running around doing stuff here in Iraq and he gets to be a part of like these huge like 06 geo level conversations about how we're going to do this like reconstruction rebuilding of Fallujah after the the battle and like what's going to happen. It's like that would be super cool. And then he gets to like delegate that down to like other teams and like see what they want to do. And like, you know, I mean, like he gets to be in this really cool position. Like I want his job. So what do I need to do right now as like E4 soon to be E5? Like, how do I get to his job? Okay. And then that started the goal setting and kind of like ladder climbing that I needed to do of like, all right, step one, make it out of Fallujah alive. All right. (laughs) Step two, I'm going to need to like get into some kind of ROTC program, get accepted to college. Right. Like I hadn't been a college student this whole time. So I'm like, okay, I need to figure that out. And when we get back from this deployment, all right, I'm going to need to like pursue a path to becoming an officer and being a good student, high school, I was average, right? My parents told me I didn't live up to my potential, but I was distracted with social things. You know, I had better things to do. Um, but I need to, like, actually excel, apply myself, and, like, do the things necessary to become an officer. And so, yeah, during that deployment in Fallujah is where all of those kind of major life decisions were made about what kind of leader I wanted to be, what I saw in authentic leaders that, you know, empowered subordinates to be a part of the overall conversation and the mission, 
and that the army would be the best place for me to do that and it best done as an officer. Yeah. Cause we all have those good, good leaders and bad leaders, like I said before. Um, and that it sounds like that first appointment was really your, your, your turning point, the turning point in your life and the turning point in your career. Is there anything that, that, uh, that you, uh, still kind of remember from that first appointment? Um, I mean, I remember, uh, the Marines didn't, take kindly to to my swag and kind of the privileged position as an E4 <laughs> that I had. I remember me and corporals getting into it all the time because they, I mean, they're, they're looking back on it. Obviously they're right. They're non-commissioned officers and I was not. Um, but cocky specialist Smythe circa 2004, 2005 would always clap back with, bro, you're an E4 and I'm an E4. We get paid the same and we're not even in the same service. Like, kick rocks if you think I work for you. Like I don't away. have to listen. You're not yeah. my dad. You are not my dad. Get away from me. We're both E4s. I don't know who you think you are. And like, yeah, you've been in way longer than me, but we're both E4s. That sounds like a you problem, bro. Right? And like, I mean, just getting into all kind of little pissy conversations with corporals. Um, and, and being in a position where I kind of was given given a lot of leeway and a lot of rope by my team and at times hanging myself sometimes like (laughs) overstepping maybe where I should have been as an E4 and being like, Oh, like, yeah, that's super unprofessional. Like looking back at it now, it's like, I was mad unprofessional at times. (laughs) Like I, I really screwed things up. Um, but who wasn't right. But my relationship with the Marines were, was really good. I, I had a really cool roommate who's a Lance corporal. Um, and, even after one shot me on accident, I, I still managed to, to still be nice to the core as a whole. Pause. Pause. Yes, sir. Go back to that one. You said he did. He did what to you? Yeah. So, so 203s are a tricky thing, apparently. Um, so we were on a patrol with them, and they're, they're clearing houses. And so if they encountered actual people that were, hadn't evacuated the city during the Battle of Fallujah, they would call up the CA guys and be like, hey, uh, regular humans, please human them. We don't know what to do. Um, so my team leader and I, that, that was a patrol that we were, we were on. Well, this Lance Corporal was supposed to uh, shoot his 203 into a courtyard before a squad went to clear the house. So in Iraq, the like courtyard gates to like their driveways are like two steel like doors that, um, that latch kind of in the middle. One was open. One was closed. We were on the other side of the street directly across from the closed one. Um, he missed the very clearly open part that he was supposed to shoot into and, <laughs> and shot the 203 into the closed one. And so the way this munition works is that the shrapnel from uh, said explosion um, bounces back directly across the street to where myself and my team leader are taking a knee. And so we each kind of just got peppered with uh, shrapnel from a 203. So I got like cool little dime size holes. In Holy my leg in my shit. Arm. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened. He was very apologetic, but I should have seen this coming dead ass two blocks before that. They were telling him to shoot a 203 into a second story window and he sailed it over the house. (laughs) And I looked at my team leader and I was like, sir, like that landed somewhere. Like like somebody is just living their life right now. Just chilling as fuck. 203 is impacting near them. Like somebody shit just got fucked up. Like, and we, and they just kept like, do it again. Another one. Right. And he just went again, missed again. He's the side of the house. Then he finally hit the window. Right. 
And then like a few blocks later, the same the same character. Oh fuck! Missed an open door to <laughs> so a, this to guy a just shot at you. Yeah, yeah. So that happened. But no, my, my team sergeant asked me. He's like, "Well, I mean, we were, I mean, we were clearing houses, so it was in the conduct of engaging the enemy. Um, you took fire and you were wounded. You had to get like there's a casualty card. Like you had to go get treated because you're yeah, eligible for a metal for a purple heart. Purple heart. Um, I quickly said no. <laughs> like it was like reflexive. Like I think he had barely closed his mouth and I was like, no thanks, sir. And he was like, what? And I told him, I just explained to him like, you know, cause at that point I'd already decided that I wanted to be in the army and that I knew that like, you know, my career would be as a soldier in the army. And so I, I was already mentally fast forwarding to these terribly awkward moments at formals uh, where I'm wearing a purple heart at like some ball and people are like, Oh, how'd like, you get how'd that? You get that? Tell the story. And I have to repeatedly, I could already see it. I was like, there's going to be so many times in my life that I'm going to awkwardly tell a story of a Marine shooting me in Fallujah in 04 as like the reason that I have a purple heart. And I'm like, no, no. It, just, it just doesn't even seem right. I was like, one, it's a friendly fire purple heart. That seems awful. Two, and especially at that time, um, you know, it, it. Thankfully, we as an army, we got better. But at that time, there were people that were getting legitimately messed up, like you know, TBIs from IED impacts, vehicle rollovers, you know, while under contact from mortar fire, like things that we didn't immediately see as combat wounds that were deserving of you know, CIBs, cabs, purple hearts and things like that at the time. And so I just felt like this would be awful if I know that dudes are getting like messed up in ways, but yeah. there were the third vehicle in the convoy, not the second one that actually got targeted by the IED, but their front tires got blown out and they all have severe TBIs and blood coming from their ears, but we're not going to acknowledge that that's like a combat wound and give them a purple heart. Only the people in the vehicle that got hit. And so I knew that that kind of stuff was happening and I'm like, bro, I'm not, I'm not getting a purple heart for a Marine shooting me. For with another dude just yeah, yeah, shoot a Marine, me. Like, you know, bouncing a 203 off a friggin' closed gate and me getting shrapnel all over my body. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. That's a terrible story to tell. But yeah, yeah, that also did happen uh, in Iraq during that time. But it, as awkward and terrible as that year was in the sense that, you know, it was, yeah, it was combat all the time. Like, you know, I wasn't obviously a combat armed soldier, but CA dudes had to get attached to all of the Marine patrols that were going everywhere because somebody had to do assessments to that whole city. Somebody had to figure out what essential services worked and didn't. Somebody had to figure out where all the dead bodies were, call the imam and have Jesus. him go pick them up. So we had to walk around and plot grids to every dead body that was just strewn around the city. Holy um, shit. Every time the Marines cleared a house, there was a CA dude there with them because if the people hadn't evacuated their home and were actually hunkered down in the basement and it wasn't, you know, it was Arkawi and his dudes in their house. Well, the Marines weren't going to deal with those people. They were going to call us and be like, hey, there's regular people here. I don't know. Figure it out, guys. Like, what do you guys do to regular people? It's like, we'll, we'll take care of it there, <laughs> devil dog. We'll take care of it. Um, so, yeah, it was just, it was a nonstop and very busy deployment. Um, but for some reason, it didn't deter me from wanting to continue being in the Army. God, like, That's what actually sold me on wanting to stay in the Army. All that stuff, which, to be fair, it's, where, it's in the struggle where you really find yourself. Hashtag trauma bond. You got a trauma bond with <laughs> Hashtag people. trauma bond. <laughs> uh, being in the shit and really ha going through those really shitty times uh, really kind of uh, builds character and shows you who you really are yeah. in times of stress and times of trauma. And, mm -hmm. and it really shows you what kind of a person you really are. Are you, are you a person who's going to run, run away from uh, the, the problem or are you one of those people that are going to try to figure it out? Yep. You know, and sounds like, clearly you're one of the dudes that figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. So from 
so now, so you're coming back from um, Fallujah, from Iraq. You got you got shot by a marine. Yeah, that happened. You turned down a Purple Heart. You come down. You come. You redeploy uh, from Iraq, and at this point, you're already set on. You want to be a, a CA company commander. Yeah. So you put in your your you put in your packet. Yeah. So I knew that. Okay. How do I do this? What's the path? Um, and unfortunately, unlike squared away NCOs like yourself and many others that are out there, um, I didn't have that kind of leadership that could walk me through soup to nuts. Like, Hey, you're an E5 right now. This is what you need to do to apply to an RTC program. Okay. Then you're going to commission. Here's how you would then do that. Like there was nobody helping me do this. We were a reserve unit that got back and it was kind of like, figure it out. And so I'm like, okay. Um, the only thing that I knew was that because of the op tempo at the time, my reserve unit was going to get called up to deploy multiple times. Uh-huh. And I just knew that that was inevitable. So thankfully I was able to get into UC Berkeley and start being a, an ROTC cadet at their school. And though they told me, Hey, you're prior service. Like you're an E5, like airborne aerosol cab. Like you, you don't need to be here as a freshman and a sophomore. Like you can just wait until your MS3 year, your junior year, and then you sign a contract and you, um, you know, participate all the time in the RTC program. I told them straight up. I was like, if I don't sign a contract right now, my unit is going to deploy like a, probably a couple of times while I'm a student here in college and I'm going to have to keep taking breaks. So this four year college experience is going to turn into six or yeah. seven, like very soon. And they're like, oh, so I signed a contract like straight up as soon as they would let me. I did. And sure enough, uh, yeah, 445th Civil Affairs Battalion out of Mountain View, California, got called up in. They deployed. So we got back in 05. They deployed again in 07 into 08. Um, and then again in 2011. And so like I would have had at least a year off. But then when, in 2011, when I was deployed in 2011, I got to see them all again. Like but now my team sergeant was a first sergeant and now the people. Oh, sure. Idea. So everybody ranked up. And I mean, yeah. everybody ranked up, including yourself, because yeah, you, yeah. you're a fucking uh, second lieutenant at this point. First lieutenant during the at the time of the deployment. Yeah, I was a first lieutenant already. And so, yeah, it was funny seeing them. And they're like, holy hell, like former E1, four, four, two, three, four, five Smythe in Iraq with us in 04. Seven years later, here we all are. In Good old Sar Smythe. Yeah, and it's like, now he's a lieutenant. He's a PL. He's got his own Who dudes. the fuck let this guy be right? a fucking officer? There were some of them that had this look on their face of like, is this real life? How did he become a lieutenant? This is crazy. <laughs> but that's um, how it goes. Sometimes yeah. the people who you least fucking expect it yeah. <laughs> become officers. And you're like, who the fuck approved this yes. shit? Like, how did they let this happen? <laughs> So 2005 to 2009, you're a cadet at Berkeley. Yep. Uh, you get promoted to E5. Yep. Uh, you get accepted into ROTC, and you get to see a peak behind the curtain of the officer world, right? Yeah. So it was, so one, hashtag 2005 NCO of the year, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, battalion NCO of the year. Still got a 2-3. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the old NCOER system, right? So there's not, there, before there were, uh, MQs and HQs and all that stuff. It was like a numbering system. Okay. Right. So potential to let you know where the fuck you, you know stand, you stood, right? <laughs> One being the highest two, like was kind of like an HQ three it was very bad. Right. Um, and so the first number is your performance. Second number potential. And, uh, 
and I got a two three. So two, as in my performance, was a two, which is weird. Everybody got a one one. That was just kind of the that's the reason we changed the NCOER system to what it is now. Is because everyone was just getting a one one. So how do we distinguish NCOs from one another? Everybody's if, the best of the best. Everyone's the best of the best. Everybody's Audie Murphy. And so basically, you guys' NCOER stopped mattering for boards. Yeah. It's like well, they all look the same. So back then, I was I got a two for p- performance and a three for potential. So apparently, I was only going to get worse. <laughs> Yet, <laughs> yet, I was the battalion NCO of the year. I mean, the reserve system is so wild. Like, it's, it's maybe the worst NCO you've ever seen, and it makes no sense. I use it almost as a vignette when I try to teach the team leaders, like, hey, here's how you can, like, fail an NCO that you otherwise think is, like, the go-to guy. Here's how writing, just simply your ability to write, yeah. can absolutely ruin this person. Take it's- time, put energy behind this edit, review, get experts to look at it. I was like, because you might mean well, but if you don't know how to write and you don't understand this system, you can ruin somebody it's that true. you don't intend to. It's true. And I've had, I've had uh, my raters be like, I've had, uh, I've had a couple of raters be like, write your NCOER. And I'm like, Absolutely I'm not. about to get a fucking MQ right now. Yeah. Because if, if you dispute this shit, you, you're the one that told me to fucking write this shit. I'll write yeah. my NCO support form 100%. Yes. I'll write this support form all fucking day. Yeah. But if you're telling me to write my fucking NCOER, I better not see anything less than a fucking MQ on that shit. Big facts. Um, and so it was, it was, yeah, it was one of those moments of like, okay, I'm an E5 now. I need to go somewhere else. I need to, I need to become a cadet. I need to start learning how to be a lieutenant. And so... The cool thing about being in the reserves is that you can do the simultaneous simultaneous membership program is what it, what they call it SMP. So I was a, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year reservist, wearing a dot as a cadet, um, while still in ROTC, obviously at Berkeley. And so because I deployed with all these guys and grew up with them as like you know as privates and stuff, you know, all the way to E five, and the senior leadership had known me this whole time. It was really cool that they embraced my new position as an officer in training apprentice, so to speak. Right. And so <laughs> I stopped, I stopped having to go to some of the like NCO meetings and like, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And so the officers were kind of like, all right, Smythe, like we're going to treat you like a Lieutenant, like come over here. Like, <laughs> like here's how we're preparing like training meeting slides. Here's let's go to the, let's go to the QTB. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, it's inventory time, homie. Right. Like it was, it was cool because they like, you know, let me be a part of that and kind of like, they played into yeah, it, you know, like see like, Hey, you know, he's one of our own. He's going to go be an officer on active duty. We'd be doing the army a disservice if we didn't help prepare him to do that. And so they let me lead like little training briefings and stuff like that. And what was really cool was that my former peers, you know, all the lower enlisted guys and then some of the, the junior NCOs, they were like good sports about it. Like they didn't like give me a hard time and were like, ah, oh, get the hell out of here. Like, they're like, smite, sit the fuck down. What is even a dot? Like move, okay, get out of here. Yeah. No, they like played the role. They were like, okay, sir. Okay. So then in phase two, what time do we SP? Blah, blah, blah. Like, and, I, and like, they were like actively participating as I'm trying to give them this op order for like, you know, some bullshit convoy movement from the drill center to where we're going to do training and then come back that afternoon or whatever. Um, but no, they helped me and like they they made me feel much more comfortable in this new role that I was going to take. And, and those guys at that unit were were amazing. Like they um, had my back during the deployment and were very much a part of like shaping me to be this. OK, you're going to go off and be a lieutenant. Almost like you rep 
us like you represent yeah. us like you know what i mean like because they want have, the they want the best for you yeah and they're like you can't fail because and that's a knock on us because we had every opportunity in the world from when you were a soldier deployed with us to iraq to now that you're training up to go be a lieutenant like we had every opportunity in the world to mentor you and to make you the best version of yourself that we could and give all the wisdom and knowledge that we have in us to you if we don't do that like we're failures and yeah. so we need you to succeed like for us, you know what I mean? And so I've very, I very much felt that, that, you know, they were going out of their way to make sure that I was the best version of myself that I could have been. And I learned a lot from a lot of them, good and bad on, you know, the way that they interacted with people, the way that they treated people, the way that they changed, which I realized early on was something I didn't like. I didn't like versions of themselves when we were all in a room mm-hmm. and they were like, okay, so my, here's how we do this. Here's how we do this. And I'm seeing these captains and these majors interact with one another and then now me, I'm kind of let into this like little little secret group, right? As they're kind of preparing things. The NCOs and the soldiers were out like, you know, in the arms room or doing other kinds of stuff, you know, in the morning. And then seeing the way that they addressed the soldiers and the way that they treated them like later. Oh, uh, okay. And I was like, oh, you guys are mad fake. Like, oh, like the real version of you was kind of like corny. Of well, yeah. I mean, like it, it wasn't even like in a negative way. It was just the real version of them behind closed doors was kind of corny. They were kind of dorky, you know, tell some dad jokes, right? And they were just kind of like doing their thing, planning. It was instructive. And they were kind of like going through that. And I was like, oh, these guys are kind of pleasant. I usually never hear major so-and-so like talk, right? Like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like, he's got a little It was just the audience that they were around that kind of shaped who they were at yes, the time. They were very much chameleon, like changing the yeah. way that they were behaving. Because then when they were around the soldiers, it very much had that like, I'm on, I'm in an ivory tower. I am like not, you know do not speak to me. Like they were very formal and very kind of like directive with people. And I was like, Oh, but you were so cool. Like a second ago, like they probably appreciate if you were just like that same version of yourself there, like the things that you're telling them to do, they're totally shitty. Like they would probably not mind it as much if you were like in it with them. If you've kind of, you know, throw your little one liner that you gave earlier when we were planning it, like do that now. Like, you know, they're completely switched script, completely different. And I'm like, Oh, you're super fake. Like, Hmm. I mean, I guess, like, maybe somebody smarter than me will explain to me that, you know, that's necessary, that, you know, you have to separate, you know, kind of leadership and officerism, you know, like, from others. I saw it as everybody can see through this. Yeah. Like, you're, you're, you have this very pompous kind of, like, you know, nose in the air kind of vibe because you guys are all field grades and... You know, the E3s and E4s need, like, they better not raise their hand and ask a question. They need to just fall out, go to their NCOs, get the directions, and go execute the thing. And you guys all quickly, as officers, scurry off back inside, and then I'm supposed to go with you. And I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing that, like, "Mm, yeah, that's not cool. Because I remember being those guys over there, the ones that we just told what to go do, and they're scurrying off back over there wondering why, and they're about to spend the rest of the afternoon, like, in the sun doing this thing that we just told them to do. They're trying to figure out why they have to do it, and, like, what is this for... And they're just going to suck right now. I remember being one of them like, oh, but I kind of know the answer and could like totally like just run over there and be like, oh, guys, hey, hey, look, the reason you're doing this. Hey, so do you guys know that like next week we're going to go do this thing? And like, so if we have everything ready right now, like it's gonna, like it wouldn't have taken much. And I knew how much that would have meant for me if the roles were reversed, if I was yeah. back to being an E4. And so I remember thinking to myself like, OK, predictability, understanding, being able to ask why, being a part of the conversation and 
this little two-faced mask wearing thing that senior leaders do in front of their peers versus in front of subordinates and feeling like that's expected of them by the institution, right? The institution of the army expects senior people to behave a certain way and on a pedestal, kind of in an ivory tower, they need to be much more, we, we associate that with being professional, right? Like you need yeah, to be professional. And what that means is no joking. Don't say things inappropriate. You're laughing You're a fucking robot. Yeah. It's like you seem immature. You need to be like very buttoned up and very serious all the time because that's what a professional means I wholeheartedly disagree with that and think that um, being a professional is knowing your craft, knowing your people getting the most out of your people because you know your craft and having them inspired to do what they're supposed to do because they want to Yeah. because work should not be okay, this sucks, I have to go do army stuff, I hate my life it should be I'm going to hang out with my friends and we all wear the same clothes and we all have a job to do today and we're going to go do that and it makes everyone perform better and act better. And so I, I think I started to see that during that time, back to your original question of getting to shadow and kind of see things from the other side. Now that it was no longer an E5 anymore, I got to kind of get you know pulled into what the O's were doing. I started to kind of make decisions about what I wanted to be as a leader then. So based on having been treated a certain way when I was lower enlisted, right? When I was, when I was deployed and stuff and liking that I was a part of the conversation and I got to contribute to then seeing officers have different versions of themselves in front of others because they felt, I mean, they weren't bad people. They just felt like, no, there's a certain kind of vibe that is expected of a field grade to have. Or like as a captain, like I cannot just talk shit about the game last weekend with this PV2. Like, no, like, and, I will stay and, away from him. And that's, and that's what I think um, really stands out uh, from regular officers from straight out of college and or West Point from um, uh, green to gold, because for the most part, green to gold folks know the struggle. They know the, they know the shit for lack of better terms. They know what it feels like to be an E3, E4 uh, feeling like you're not getting, you're not getting the, not, not necessarily you're not getting the attention, but the fact that you know what it feels like to feel low, yep, to feel low on the totem pole and then um, if and or one of the one of you guys comes up to the ranks and then all of a sudden you're a lieutenant or a captain coming up to a PFC or a specialist asking them how their how their weekend was, how their kids are. And um, that actually speaks volumes because it makes for that for that quick interaction. It makes that uh, lower enlisted feel like, oh, shit, somebody's actually paying attention to me. Yeah. Exactly. Somebody actually gives a shit about me. And in terms, it, it results into them thinking, oh, somebody she gives a shit about me, resulting into better performance, uh, a more feeling of uh, camaraderie, more feeling like, oh, I am not in this by myself. And mm-hmm. that, and that's, that's one thing that you and I kind of share, knowing your soldiers to the lowest level, yeah. even, even the smallest bit of them, because even the smallest comment will it might mean nothing at the time, but it, it also could mean everything because it's one thing to some, for somebody to be like, how, how, how was your weekend? You're like, Oh, that's great. My weekend was great, but your weekend might've been shit. And you're going through all these things and knowing your soldiers, it's coming to, how was your weekend? Eh, it was all right. All right. Don't give me that bullshit. Like we were talking about earlier. Don't give me that bullshit. Tell me how it really was. And then you're like, well, you know, things of that going on. How was this? How was that? And getting to know your soldiers and knowing them and knowing their work performance and, know, and being able to tell uh, when their work performance is shit mm-hmm. 
because of other reasons or because they might be going, but because they might be going a different direction, but knowing kind of where they're at is very important. And I think you, and I think you've done a very good job at that. Um, I don't, I've, I've been around your company, you're a company commander now, and, and you can just tell that the climate in that company is just fucking great. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, it's definitely something that I take a lot of pride in, and I think that there's, you know, the old army of, hey, we're going to go do an esprit de corps run, right? Fuck like, that. Let's do a company run because this builds esprit de corps. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, a bunch of people miserably stomping down a fucking street. Fuck no. Singing cadence. Like, really? Did that make us better as a unit or <sighs> as an organization? Did that make... Leaders understand soldiers, their issues, their problems better. No, we sang songs and ran with a flag down a street. Like that was not team building. That's just a bullet. That's just a thing to say that you did. Right. And it's like, well, why why do we do it? Well, because we always do it. Right. It's like, well, who cares? Like, that's not an actual thing. Now, when we had spring break block leave and I had 23 people in my company on leave, Oconus and domestic, I sent a text to every single one of them individually and then asked them, how Leaf was going. Hey, what's up? What are you up to? And had 20, I mean, Signal was popping for like a weekend because I did this like on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. And so all the way into Sunday, I had like 23 separate conversations going on. And a few of them, it was sad. It, yeah. it broke my heart. A few of them thought that something happened and that I needed something or I was going to call them back from leave because their experiences up until that point had been the commander is messaging me on a Saturday while I'm on leave. Why? So why? Something happened. I probably am going to have to end this vacation. Do I need to get, get on a fucking plane back? Yes. Do I need to get on a plane? Do I need to open up my computer? Is there something that I failed to do? Like, what do you need me to do? And that all happens in like a fucking millisecond. Yeah. And it was, it, it broke my heart for a few of them. Cause I was like, no, Hey man, all's good. And they're like, really? sir?" I was like, yeah, bro. I just, I knew you were going to the DR. It's kind of like a vacation <laughs> was like, you good. You having fun. It's like, Oh, yeah, yeah, sir. It's lit. I'm totally having a good time. It's, it's like, kind of like that's pet, awesome. It's kind of like petting a, a dog who's been abused his whole life. Right? <laughs> it really flinch, is. And they flinch and they're like, and you're what? just like, I'm trying to pet you. And yeah. they're like, I'm just waiting for it. I'm yeah. just waiting for you to beat yeah. the shit out of me. <laughs> so <laughs> literally just to say hi and yeah. be like, oh, everybody doing good? And then that allowed me as a new commander, I'd only been in command for like a month, to know about them, what yeah. they do on their own time. what they're, So I got to know that one of my NCOs was out there hunting with his kid and they were skinning and prepping a deer and like doing other stuff. And he was sending pictures and I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. One of my other NCOs was on leave Oconus. He was hanging out in Columbia at a rooftop bar and was like living his best life. And I was like, dope. Okay. I know he's into, into that. He likes, you know, fancy drinks and wearing loafers and no socks. Bet, right. <laughs> so I'm like learning about everybody at the same time that I'm having these, like, you know, and I was just sitting at my dining room table, poured a drink and I'm just like, all right, phone is charged here we go because now i'm gonna have a million different conversations all at once and it wasn't a mass group text i didn't say like on behalf of everybody no 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 No. it was point i pulled up the purse stat looked at every single person that was on leave and to remember the location so that i could put in the message like hey bro how's orlando you good like how's the family what you guys up to and they're like oh Okay, yeah, everything's good, sir. Like, I mean, do you need me to do, do something? Me, do you need me to open up no. my computer? What do you, no. do you need this fucking con up? No, no. man, just make sure. It was sure. just to do that. And that just goes to show you the smallest, uh, the smallest way to reach out can actually mean the most to uh, a lot of people and can, can help them make sure, can help them realize that they're being cared for in a, in a little way. Yeah. You know, I, I don't like the, 
the blanket, just kind of like cliche phrases and stuff. So doing little things like that didn't take that much of my time. No, but it, it, I was hoping that it had the intended effect of letting them know that like, Oh, the commander of my organization realizes that I'm on vacation. I'm on leave and literally just wants to make sure that I'm having a good time, that I'm safe. Everything's cool. It takes an adjustment period. Be honest. Cause oh. if I, if I'm getting a, a text from my commander, I'm like, what the fuck is happening? I'm parking the car. I'm like, all right, I'm fucking waiting here until they fucking reply. Yeah. Oh, I'm just making sure you're good. Hey, are you sure? Yeah. I don't have my computer on me. Do you need the phone for It's like, yeah. it's like I'm going yeah. into flight or fight. I'm just <laughs> yeah. like, do I need to go back to work? Pick up my computer. What the fuck is happening? Yeah. You know, yeah. but, th- but that speaks, that speaks volumes of you as a leader. Um, but just let me go back real quick to, uh, you're, you're finally, uh, 2009, you're graduating ROTC. You're starting as an MS one. Uh, you didn't deploy with the unit, which kind of proved good, yeah. proved to be a good a uh, good thing. Because if not, you would have been uh, held back a couple a couple of years uh, yeah. in ROTC. Finally, I'm assuming around 2010, you finally commission. You yeah, finally so done. Oh nine, so May of 2009, um, I graduated, and then went to you know the equivalent of basic in AIT, but for lieutenants, right? So we yeah. went, at the time it was you know you go to Bullock you know, basic officer leader course, you know, kind of a basic standard one. It was either at Fort Sill or at Fort Benning at the time. Um, so I went to Fort Sill and it's kind of, regardless of what branch you're going to have and what ROTC program you went to, it's a way to give every incoming Lieutenant, like a foundation. So you do basic things like, you know, yeah. land nav, you know, marksmanship stuff, op order stuff. Um, and then I went to Fort Leonardwood for, um, the MP basic officer leader course. Cause I commissioned as a military police Lieutenant, um, only reason I did that is because because when I was in Iraq in 04, they were the only people that I saw living in the city. And so I was like, well, if I want to ref- keep my skills frosty to go back to CA, interacting with local nationals and stuff like that. And that's the biggest engagement. I was like, who did I actually see interacting with the population other than us as CA guys? I'm like, those cops, those MPs were <laughs> those living, fucking cops. Yeah, they were living at the IP stations, like working with the Iraqi police. I'm like. Ah, okay. So I'll go do that in the meantime before I can go back to CA. So I picked MP as a branch. Um, and then, yeah, I got to Fort Hood um, the second week in November. So it was before Thanksgiving, um, 2009. And it was a week after the Major Nadal Hassan shooting that, that happened at Fort Hood. So he was a psychiatrist at their SRP site and had his own issues and demons, um, potentially some radicalization was involved as well. Um, and yeah, brought firearms to work. And in that SRP site, as the soldiers from first Cav were prepping for another deployment, similar to how we go through, you know, all that kind of mandatory, you know, admin stuff, medical stuff, you know, before you deploy. Yeah. He started shooting at the facility. Jesus. Uh, I forget the total number. I think it was 13, but it was total number of people that were wounded, killed, um, that happened like as a part of that event. So all the MPs on post, they all responded, you know, got into a shootout with him. He ultimately wounded a few MPs and DA civilian police officers that were on Fort hood. They wounded him as well. Um, and paralyzed him. And so when I got there and reported to the MP battalion, I was in the, the brigade first and then ultimately over to the MP battalion. Um, there were soldiers in my platoon that were like a part of that, like at the time. And we ended up getting tasked to, provide escorts for him to go to and from his court dates. So yeah, by the time the trial ended up happening, yeah, I want to say this was, uh, um, 2010. 
uh, yeah, we ended up having to like, you know, be a part of a tasking to, and I had to be very deliberate on who I sent on that tasking. It was, I picked only the new soldiers that weren't there during 09 that maybe it just came from Korea or some other duty station. Um, so that they wouldn't be emotional at the Mm -hmm. time that they're assigned to protect this person that, you know, shot and wounded their fellow soldiers, shot and wounded their fellow military police officers. Um, and so that was, it was definitely a challenge and it, and it required me to know the people in my 42 person platoon at a level that maybe others wouldn't have to. They're not just yeah. names on a paper. It's like, okay, I not only have to know each one of you, where were you during this period of time? Who are your friends? How emotionally charged is this for you? It goes is a little it, bit more in depth. Yeah. Is this potentially a trigger for you? Um, will you be a professional and execute it? Sure. But why should I put you through that emotional turmoil if I can avoid it? Yeah. Um, and so dialing back to, knowing your people being your normal self, knowing that I wouldn't want that to happen to me. Right. I wouldn't want you to put me in charge of somebody that smoked one of my friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I would want one of my bosses or one of my leaders to take that into account, to know me well enough to know that that would bother me and to actually like have that be a part of their decision-making, especially if you can help it. Right. There's certain things that, yeah, it's going to suck. You can't help it. It's just the way that it's going to be, you know, we'll work through this together. We'll talk when it's over. But when you can control certain things and when things are absolutely in your control and you can mitigate certain kinds of pain for other people, I think, you know, if you're in charge, if you're a leader, you absolutely should do that. And you should, yeah. you know, um, not put people through things unnecessarily. And so that was one of those those moments where I had to be cognizant of, all right, how do people feel about this? Who can handle this and is the, the most emotionally equipped to deal with escorting this guy back and forth and you're charged with protecting him. <laughs> like, so it's not just like, Oh, I'm just, just here take to, him here and there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just the driver. Right. It's like, no, 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 no. You're on the detail to protect him from the community, from other soldiers. Cause you have to take him from post, like to the courthouse yeah. in Colleen and then you got to take him back. Right. So it's like, your job is to protect him. That, so that, that's got to be, not only is it, can you get over the thing that he did and like, yeah, I can deal with it. It's like, Okay, but now you have to put your own life at risk potentially for him. For him, and so it it, it was a very deliberate process to select that to, to select the people that were going to be on that detail. But um, but I was happy that it what made it easier was the depth in which I knew the soldiers in the platoon already and like who could handle it, who couldn't, and that was just muscle memory leadership from before that I need to know. I need to know everybody. I need to know what buttons to push. I need to know what triggers them. So when bad things like this challenging things like this happen, like I know where to go. So it sounds like you have a good foundation of how to be a leader, uh, knowing your soldiers, knowing uh, how they react, how they could react and really getting a good idea of who they are as people. Um, Going back to your career, you at this point are like 2011, 2010 um, Fort Hood. What happens after that? So we, we ended up deploying to Kandahar, um, Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012. Um, there was a prisoner escape from prison, one of the famous prisons in Kandahar city in April of 2011. We got there in May. Um, and the outpost that we were at, um, it was a platoon cop, like co-located, like a madrasa, like a school was like surrounding us. We had five tents just set up inside of this place. It was on the side of a mountain. And that prison was, you know, a few blocks up the street. So the Afghan police that we were working with were responsible for patrolling that, you know, the area um, Mm -hmm. of the community and making sure that the escape route and like where those prisoners came from was 
you know, covered up, patrolled, stuff like that. So we didn't have much interaction with the prison itself, but um, we were attached to um, an infantry and then later a uh, um, cavalry troop that was that was in that part of um, Kandahar City. So it was a very intimate deployment. Um, when you're, you know, 42 people in five GP mediums on the side of the mountain by yourself, responsible for your own patrols, your own towers, your own security, your own log pack. You got to request that stuff. I mean, there's no, there was no one around us. There was no, no, let me just go back to the head shed down the street. It's like, man, me as a Lieutenant, like I am the judge, jury, executioner, the czar, the, the all (laughs) things, you know what I mean? It's like, I, the buck stops with me. It's like, who's the senior American in this entire sub district, whatever. It was me. Yeah, that's you. As like a lieutenant, just the point. It was crazy, <laughs> bro. Um, and so, yeah, that deployment was like, and I don't mean this flippantly or to say this, you know, as if, you know, humans aren't real and I was just, you know, experimenting. But a lot of what I had learned about myself from my first deployment, a lot of what I had learned about being a leader, good things, bad things that I'd seen from other people, a lot of ideas that I had about what, what kind of leadership I would want, what kind of um, deployment experience I would have preferred to have. I was kind of trying out on that deployment. There was a lot of kind of, okay, um, let's do some consensus building. Let's kind of discuss some things like, okay, I'm not just going to blindly just say things and give orders and then people just go execute. I kind of want to bring the squad leaders in for this thing. Would other platoons do it that way? Eh, maybe not, but I'd like to. Um, we had the privilege of having worked together for a year first. I was a PL for two years. So the first year was all training. It was all just preparing for this deployment. And then the second year was the deployment. And then I came out of position when we came back. But I knew the people in the platoon pretty well. Um, I knew their strengths, their weaknesses, and the kinds of things that they appreciated that I brought them in to share decisions on. I also knew how to push their buttons. I also knew how to get the most out of them. I'm not a yeller and a screamer, you know, I'm very much, I think my call sign was awesome six. They used to, I used to, I used to joke with them and like, you know, get on the radio and they'd be like calling something up, like go for awesome six. And they were like, Oh, what else? Of course. Sir? Right. And of like, course. Yeah. Yeah. So we, 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 we had a good time in that platoon, but I was able to get the most out of them without yelling. Like okay. I'm not a screamer. I'm not a yeller. Um, but they knew first and foremost, I had to be very competent. Like I had to be very good at what I did and like they had to know it. So them knowing that like, okay, I believe, and it seems to be pretty obvious. Lieutenant Smythe is considered like the best Lieutenant in the battalion. Got it. He was like, we like, yeah, I'm the platoon sergeant. I saw his OER. Yeah. It said number one of whatever. Right. It's like, okay, so he knows what he's doing. So he's going to hold us to that same standard and know that, we're good and that we're competent and that we're capable. Right. And so I remember, I remember this very, very clearly. So there was a, so we, I made the patrol tracker for the week. Right. So I came up with, you know, Hey, we have to do a morning patrol an evening patrol. They're usually like five, six hours. Um, we partnered with the Afghan police guys and then we go out and patrol different things. We we're trying to teach them how to like patrol sectors between their checkpoints and things like that, like okay. normal police would do. Um, but we were also getting after PIRs and doing things to support our higher headquarters. Um, and so I made that schedule and then would send it to the company headquarters every week. It was very, And then I posted it. And so everybody knew when, depending on what squad I'm in, when am I going on a patrol? Any day that ends in Y, I can look at the the next seven days and I see exactly where I'm going. All days end in Y. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <Boom. laughs> 
All the days had a schedule associated with them. So my task to the NCOs of the platoon was, hey, we also have to man these four towers on this little platoon cap that we're in. So you see the patrol tracker. I make the patrol tracker. I post it. So you know which squads are going out, what times, when they're going to be back. You guys have to come up with who the SOG is going to be. Sergeant of the Guard for anyone. Um, And then who's responsible for doing those towers? They were like, bet. Got it. Too easy. Hella simple. Cool. Until it stopped being that simple. Um, I would pick of those two, of those two patrols that we would do every day, um, the evening and the, and the daytime one, I would pick, I would go on one every day, right. With whatever squad was doing them. If I needed the, to talk to the police commander about something, cause there was some bigger meeting coming up. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go in the day to daytime patrol with whatever squad mm-hmm. on Tuesday. Cause I need to talk to, you know, captain so-and-so or whatever. Um, sometimes I'd go in the night one just cause, Low key, I was selfish and it was mad hot in <laughs> Kandahar. And I'd be like, yeah, I'll do the 2100 to 03 patrol because uh, it's not oh, as hot at that time. And so if I have to go lay in a field in the middle of Kandahar City. Like, yeah, um, I'd rather that be from nine o'clock at night until three in the morning. Um, probably more dangerous then, but also not as hot. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go do that. Um, so I, I could always pick and choose which patrol I went on, but they always knew like who was going where and they had to just come up with a schedule. Yeah. So during one of those patrols that I was on with one of the squad, I could hear grumblings. I started to hear like fucking, fucking Lieutenant Smythe, you piece of shit. Yeah. Well, luckily it wasn't that. Um, <laughs> no, no, it was grumblings about not knowing what they had to do once we got back. <coughs> so they were complaining that like, oh, hey, dude, like, do you want to watch, you know, whatever movie it was, right? Every, you know, and they're like, oh, I can, I got I towers. Can, I got something. towers. It's like, oh, but I thought you had it. At this time, no, somebody scribbled it off. I think I have it as soon as we get back. And they were going back and forth like, no, nah, man, I thought I looked at it when I got out of the shower and I thought we were good. It's like, no, before we SP'd. So you're I already went, hearing this confusion I'm going already on. already hearing it. And then I, I then I immediately flash back to myself as an E4 on a deployment for a year. Things are already hard. Things are already challenging. You're trying to stay alive. You're not really sure about, you know, what each day is going to bring with it. So it's the small little things that get you through the day, get you through the week, right? Like, yeah. oh, you know, chow was awesome today. Hell yeah, they had ice cream. Fuck yeah, I got to like sit around and like watch whatever movie it was that I got from my battle buddy who had it on a thumb drive. And he <laughs> Who's got a fucking it. hard drive. Yeah, he's got a terabyte, right? And he, boom, he passed me that thing. <laughs> I put a few of them on my computer. Hell yeah, I'm gonna watch this whole series, right? Little small things, right? Yeah. That I'm gonna get to work out. I'm gonna get to take a nap. I'm gonna get like the little things that you try to like look forward to that get you through the next day, the next yeah. mission, the next patrol, the next week, the next month. Um, I could start to see that like that wasn't happening, that there was anxiety unnecessarily being applied to the guys in the platoon because they just didn't know outside of the patrol that they were doing. They were never really sure. So do I have to eat like midnight chow? Do I have to get just like, a sandwich from the fucking? Yeah. yeah. Do I do, because we had one cook with an MKT. So it's not like we had a chow hall. It oh, was shit. a cook with an MKT. He made the 43rd person of the platoon. Like like I said, it was just five tenths of people. And so we had one MKT and one cook. And he cooked meals based on the patrol tracker. So I would send him the patrol tracker. I would hand it to him. And he'd be like, okay, cool. So I know that, like, he would not make breakfast at, like, normal times, right? He would see that, okay, if, this, if somebody's going to go out from 2100 to 03, they probably want to have dinner, like, 
at this time, or I shouldn't have breakfast ready at like, you know, it'll be ready at six o'clock. It's like, well, no, because the next squad leaves at this time, nine o'clock in the morning. They get back at zero three. Maybe I should do it at like eight so they can eat right before they go. And these guys will be able to go to sleep, wake up and then go get breakfast. Like he would make it based on, then for lunch, he would just have like snacks and stuff. He's like, well, no one's going to be here. Right. Um, But I could hear that these guys were like unnecessarily stressed and like anxious. So I brought in all the NCOs when I got back and I grabbed the the tower guard roster and the SOG roster and noticed that, yeah, there was like six or seven like scribbles, a new name, a scribble, a new name, right? And I could see that was happening. And I'm like, why is this so difficult for you guys? And they looked at me just absolutely appalled. I mean, they looked at me like, what did he just say? And I was like, hey, look, guys, I mean, I do the patrol tracker every week. I mean, I can do the tower guard schedule and the SOG roster if it's too hard for you guys. Because obviously, obviously, based on this number of edits, this thing is well beyond the capability of you guys to manage. And you could see them fuming. My platoon starting to standing next to me. And like, he couldn't say anything because he's like, (laughs) he's right. Why why did this thing need to get edited 20 times? Why does no one know who the SOG is right now? Like, who is it, right? And I'm just looking at them and I was just calm. I didn't yell anything. I was like, I mean, just say the word and I can do this for you guys. What does the third paragraph of you guys' little creed say? No. It's something. It's a, yo. Oh, yeah. Oh. One of the squad leaders, I swear to God, he was maybe going to punch me, right? Like, I mean, the look on his face, he was like, oh, no, he didn't go there. Oh, no. He looked at me like, he used to be an NCO. How dare he? How dare you betray us like that? Wait, I mean, it says that officers won't have to do something about your job and that you'll give me ample time to do my no. whatever. It was something like that, third paragraph. I don't know. But I can do this for you guys if it's too hard. If they snatch that clipboard from me, they're like, sir, we will take care of it. We got this. I heard them all outside. They were absolutely furious. They, oh. were, they were yelling at each other. They were, because what, what they were saying was, and, and this is why, I mean, I wasn't worried about like, you know, a mutiny or some like weird Vietnam side where they're going to frag me or whatever. <laughs> Um, they understood that they were messing up. Yeah. And the way, and I heard them saying like the platoon chart was screaming at them. Like the LT shouldn't have to embarrass us like this. Cause we know that we're wrong. Like, why is it like this? And then the squad leaders admitted they had been delegating it to their corporals and their E5 team oh. leaders. And like, they didn't want to deal with the, you know, tower guard roster and the SOG roster. They thought they could, you know, and in their defense, they were probably trying to empower these junior NCOs yeah. to do something pretty simple and straightforward is balancing time and, you know, sleep schedules and cycles with patrol schedules and like, okay, who should be in the towers? But they weren't times. managing it. But they weren't doing it very well. Yeah. And they were favorite, they were, you know, prioritizing the best schedules for their own teams and kind of screwing over the other squads. And like, there was this weird, like... <laughs> Corporal E5 drama, right? And uh, and the squad leaders weren't tracking any of it. And so their soldiers were paying the price for it. And once the squad leaders saw, they were like, Lieutenant Smythe is right. Like, this is unacceptable. Like, why we have three different SOGs written in for the same time frame, and we've scribbled one of them out, and then there's like four different people assigned to Tower 2 for the midnight to zero four shift. Who knows which one it's supposed to be, but these soldiers are just sitting there in their tent like, <laughs> I don't know if I can go to sleep right now because I think I might get yelled at because I'm supposed to be in a tower and like I'm not going to relieve my buddy who thinks that I'm his relief. Yeah. Who's going to be my relief? Do they know? How long am I going to be sitting in this fucking tower? Right? Like, this sucks. And it was just unnecessary anxiety because it's like, we make these schedules, boys. <laughs> like, I know, what, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I make the schedule. 
I know exactly what time I'm going to go to sleep. I know exactly what time I'm going to go to the gym. I know when I'm going to eat food. I know when I'm going to rub one out. I know when I'm going up a trip. Right? Like, my life is set. I'm the PL. I get to decide this. Why does it? Why does the O2 get this kind of freedom and, like, you know, yeah. predictability and, like, ease of his life? But the E3 doesn't. Like, why is that? I used to be that E3. Yeah. I used to have to take a little wooden stick and stir shit from a little cutoff fucking uh, fuel can. or and What were those things? Those fuel drums. You put Mogas in the bottom of it, you take a shit in it, and then you stir it. Yeah, <laughs> that happened. Um, and I'm like, I used to have to be that lower enlisted kid, right, on a deployment, just <laughs> hating life. Yeah. And if I don't, if I don't in, enforce a standard for my leaders in this platoon to do the same thing to give the predictability to these guys... Then I'm being a hypocrite and I'm not living up to the thing that I wanted to be when I actually commissioned. And that's just being able to communicate with, uh, with your subordinates to the absolute lowest. Yeah. And, and, and it really, and, and you make a good point. It, it does suck to be that E3, E4, not knowing what the fuck is happening. Cause I used, like, we talked about this before. I used to be a fucking mechanic and yeah. I didn't know when to fuck. Like, my mom was probably like, what? Like, are you going to Afghanistan? Are you going to Iraq? And I'm like, I don't know what time I'm getting off of work. Mm-hmm. So, I don't fuck. That is that, those questions are way the fuck above me. I don't fucking know, uh-huh. and and it and it does add unnecessary stress, even like even more so when you're deployed, yeah. Because you're just fucking. You might be working twenty four hour ops. You don't know what the fuck is happening. You're just kind of going day by day, and that that builds a culture of well, whatever happens today, fucking happens. And that's when mistakes are made. One hundred percent. That's when people's lives are at risk. That's when you're not getting the best out of people that you should. That's when relationships go to shit. Because they're not communicating effectively with their loved ones back home because they're highly stressed. They're anxious all the time. They're not, you know, they don't know when it's cool to call yeah. back home and to do things. So significant others back home start to feel like, okay, so what happened? Like, you know, I never know when you're going to call or when it's whatever. It's like, well, I don't know either. Stop getting on me. Right. Then that's when you start. Marriages get ruined. Marriages get ruined. I was like, when you, when you artificially enhance stress and, you know, uh, uncertainty and you start to put this kind of burden on people when it's not necessary, it starts to have a trickle down effect in their lives in the health of your unit, your organization, and just how much you're actually able to perform. Like you, you stop being able to do the mission as well as you think you're doing because the people in your organization just aren't operating at hundred percent. And it takes very little effort to actually see the person, know the person, understand what's important to them, give them predictability Make them feel like a person. Make them feel like they have a voice, a part of the team. Empower them, and you get to see results that don't require micromanaging and lording over people. But some people, for some reason, don't understand that. That's sad, and and it, and it really is sad. But going back to going back to your career, yeah. um, uh, finally you get back from Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you start Triple C. Yep. You start Triple C. You you come to brag. Um, you have to go, even though you were already <laughs> part of civil affairs, you deployed as civil affairs, you still have to go to selection. Yeah, yeah, that happened. So <laughs> when I say that, like, the young enlisted version of me, you know, I was able to shake off a lot of that, like, ego and cockiness and arrogance. Yeah, I got to see when I made that phone call with Branch that some of it still existed because there was a moment of me saying, like, who do you people think you are? <laughs> like, you're telling me that I need to go try out to go see if I can effectively be a civil affairs soldier. It's like, bro, I was doing this before a lot of you were in the army. A lot of you were doing other yeah. MOSs, and I was deployed in Iraq doing this job pretty effectively in 2004. Um, yeah, I've already been to, like I've already been trained in this job. I know what I'm doing. You're making me like ten years later go through a tryout Fuck, for somebody. Years to, later, for yeah, I mean this was. 
2013 is when I went through Holy selection. Shit. I went to AIT in 2003. So 10 years after going through CAAIT and having deployed in the middle, uh, they're telling me that I need to go to Camp McCall and have <laughs> a group of people who, I don't know what they were doing in 04, guarantee it wasn't being CA dudes. Um, they get to look at me and judge if like this captain, he has what it takes to be on a civil affairs team. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, but I got over it pretty quick. I, I think it was initial kind of like eye roll and just kind of, okay, I'll play the game. I got it. I'm on active duty now. And this is in a different role. So yeah. yes, I might've been great as a CA specialist and then E5, but do I have what it takes to be a CA team leader? Honestly, I don't know either. So it's, it's fair that I take my ass to selection and somebody look at me and be like, yeah, you did great things as an enlisted guy. You don't have what it takes to be a civil affairs officer. You know what I mean? Like what if they would have said that? You know, it's like, oh, damn. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I, I realized that quickly after the initial kind of like, you know, being disgruntled and, and appalled and offended. Uh, <laughs> I, I went, right? You know, obviously I took my ass to McCall, did, did what I was supposed to. And then, yeah, I got to spend almost a year and a half as a student. Oh, yeah. So June, uh, June of 2013, PCS from Fort Hood to uh, Fort Bragg and started the RSOF captain's career course. And yeah spent a long time as a student you almost so long that you get to the point where you're like okay at this point <laughs> it's not worth it. just just get me out of here like just <laughs> i'll go do any job in the army just i want to be a real person in the army again i'm tired of being in a student status where i'm not a real person i'm not in charge of anything i don't have any say over anything i'm treated just like everybody else in this class like i want to feel like a normal captain in the army that especially because i was still in contact with all of my peers who went to a six-month captain's career course mm-hmm. and were company commanders in the regular army like they had their own guide on ucmj name painted on a curb their own parking spot right like they're living their best lives as company commanders and they're like no what are you up to i'm like Still You're like, I'm one of the peasants. Yeah, I'm like, still a student at SWIC. I'm in language phase now. And they're like, cool, 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 cool. Um, I got to go brief QTB because, you know, I'm a, I'm a company commander, kind of a big deal. So I'm going to do that. Um, but cool, 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 cool. Do your thing, student. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, fuck. Sucks. Yeah, so I was very happy to finally graduate. Um, but yeah, 2013, I, that's the year my son was born, which was a pivotal moment, right, that... Um, I think, you know, in the midst of this discussion about leadership and kind of the way that I've learned how to be the best version of myself as a leader, things that I hold, you know, dear um, as far as how I should portray myself to my soldiers and kind of things that I should do for them to make them the best version of themselves. Having a son, I think, kind of um, made me think about that stuff even more mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I hope that, you know, being good as a being good as a soldier, being good as an officer makes me better as a dad, you know, and it's kind of that question mark is is it am i being as good of a dad as i can be am i detracting from the energy and time that i should put into being the best father to him by being you know prioritizing your time yeah yeah and um it's yeah that put a lot of things in perspective it also made me realize how how much more serious i needed to be i mean there was an element of yeah no i I know that i want to be in the army i know what career goals that i have aspirations that i have but there was at times kind of a yellow kind of like vibe to like what I was doing. I was like, well, that was reckless. Like, man, what if I would have gotten caught? Like, eh, it would have been, it, it been fine. <laughs> like, I'll be okay. Having a kid makes you go like, no, it wouldn't have been fine. How would you pay the bills next month? Yeah, because now like, you're in charge of somebody else. Now I'm in charge of a whole life. Uh, of, and, uh, of living person. Yes, a living person is looking at me like, 
Go I to work. Food, yeah. Get a paycheck. I need food, dog. You know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> I can't be as reckless and as wild in the things that I'm doing. And so, yeah, 2013 was big in the, and you know, him, him coming into the world and he's 10 now. He's an awesome kid. He's super smart. And he always says like, Oh daddy, if you do an army work with your army friends, you got to go get the bad guys. Uh, and so I always try to make him proud and continue doing things. And I think, yeah, 2013 is where it kind of like refocused me into, you know, kind of why I do what I do. And that's like, important to find yeah. out your why. And, and, and yeah. it sounds like in 2013, you like way before 2013, you yeah. kind of found your, what, like what you wanted to do. Yep. And, uh, in 2013, it sounds like you, you found your why. Yeah. Of why you wanted to do things Absolutely. to keep going and motivating you to keep forward, keep going forward. Um, I did have a question for you that, which we yeah. talked about earlier, um, being who you are, being your authentic self. And it is kind of, it's kind of, uh, w- what you talk about, uh, for the most part, because you're not the, the cookie cutter major. Mm-hmm. You're not the cookie cutter officer. Yeah. You are very eccentric. You are very out there. You are very, uh, yourself. Yeah. Which is kind of not, I don't want to say it's frowned upon, but it's different in the officer realm. Yep. In your eyes, having so many years in the army, not to call you old, but in, <laughs> in your experience in the army, um, why do you think toxic leadership works so well for the individual? Because yeah. wherever you're at, you always have a leader or somebody in a higher position who people will be like, this first arm or this arm major just stay clear from that person and you're like fuck well then how the fuck did they get to be so high up and they're effective they know what they're doing but for the most part they're just a black hole why do you think that's so effective and the short answer it gets results Mm -hmm. both professionally and for the organization right we went through 20 years of war where People could grind their organizations into the ground, make them go to a million JRTC and NTC rotations, um, give them very little free time, be super draconian and, you know, toxic when it comes to like approving leave. And, you know, uh, do you get to get out of a field problem to watch the birth of a child? No, fuck you. Get to work, Um, you know, on deployment. Like, yeah, I'm going to grind you into the dirt. But then the way that that story is spun to their bosses and those who write their, you know, report cards is that they were a lethal mission focused combat effective. Like they were a kick-ass badass BCT or battalion or whatever it was. Right. Mm -hmm. Forgetting the disaster that they left in their wake, which is people and people's lives. Right. Because we cared about those results. And so those kinds of people kept getting promoted. We also had a system, a promotion system where it was only looked at on paper. So battalion commanders were selected just based on the strength of their file. So they could be transactional, Toxic human beings step on all of their peers and everyone around them to blue falcon and spotlight themselves in the best toxic way that they could, which I see that as super gross, slimy and toxic. Right. But we rewarded those kinds of people yeah, because they had all the requisite number of evaluations, uh, exclusively enumerated kind of human beings. They did the right jobs as S threes and XOs and all that stuff. And the army was just looking at their packet and saying, wow, major asshole is an amazing person and he should obviously be a battalion commander. And it's like, really? That dude was one of the worst human beings I've ever worked for. It's like, well, he's just going to now turn an entire battalion into that same way. Right. Yeah. I think the army has understood that. Um, I am a company man, right. I've been in the organization for a long time. So I give the army credit where it's due. And I think B cap and actually having, not just your file looked at, but yeah, we're now going to invite you to kind of a tryout. 
And we're going to have to see you in person. We're going to have to see you interact with your peers. We're going to have to have you interview. Like, we're going to have to see, like, ooh, you got super great evaluations and the right jobs. But you're a motherfucker. Like, And you were you telling me about not. that because you went through an interview process to be a company commander. Yes. So, and I think our current our current brigade commander, I think, um, and in his words, not mine, you know, there's no sense in putting people in company command positions where all we're going to do is brace for contact a yeah. year later, waiting for the inevitable command climate survey to come out and say that they were ruining the lives of 30 people that had no say who their commander was. But senior leaders knew that this person wasn't a good fit, not a bad person, not a bad officer, just shouldn't be a leader. Yeah. Um, and there are some that shouldn't, right? Some are great staff people. They're just great at it. Their minds are analytical. They think, you know, um, two or three steps ahead in problem solving. They're great at Rubik's Cubes, right? They make the swoopy arrows. But they're just some not people, great at dealing with people. But they're not people. They, no. they just don't people very well, right? Um <laughs> And those kind of people should never be in command. They yeah. should never be in charge of other human beings. They can go serve the army and the organization much more fruitfully in some other job in another capacity than ever being in charge of people. And so I was happy to see that like we implemented something like that in our current organization where you have to meet with the brigade operational psychologist and you have to take a personality test. You have to see that like, do you have the traits and characteristics that might make you prone to being an ineffective leader and toxic in some way? You have to pass all the physical gates. You can't tell people to do something that you're not able to do, right? Um, and that, and we're starting to like make it much more of like a point of pride that you've been allowed to be in a leadership position of soldiers because it is a privilege. Like leading people is a privilege. It's not just a oh well, it's my turn. Like I've stuck around in the army long enough that I've gotten to this point, and it's my turn to go be a commander. It's like no, because no. you're you're because if if you think about it as a, it's your turn, you are literally just putting people's lives at risk. Not not only uh, physically, but metaphorically, and in the big army's terms. Because one, if you deploy with these people, they're their motivation is just going to be so down, so low that you may or may not cause some, cause some lives. Yeah. And um, back stateside, you may or may not just cause some unnecessary stress, like we were talking about, unnecessary stress to where it just weighs on people's lives. And you're now you're spreading the toxicity, you're, te- you're spreading the toxic climate. And in turn, you are... Uh, adding to the army's uh, recruiting deficit. People yeah. are getting out way faster than they're bringing people in mm-hmm. and you're creating this whole, and now you're kind of in a sense part of the problem. Yeah. And I, and I think to, to circle back to your, to your question, I think that kind of leadership style, I think for many years was considered effective because mm-hmm. it made people promote it, it. It caused units to believe that they were good at what they were doing. It had the senior people get promoted and then, yes, if the E5 and below population, you know, has all kinds of stories or, you know, populating all the army what the fuck moment pages with shit that happened in that unit, have all kinds of terrible, terrible negative stories about what that organization was going through, that's irrelevant as long as the company commander made major, as long as the battalion commander yeah. made 06. Like, none of those people care. Like, you can say whatever was going on in that organization at that time and talk about how terrible all the leaders were, but if that... If that platoon sergeant is now a first sergeant, if that first sergeant is now a CSM, he's going to look at you and be like, hashtag your problem, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> like, boom, like made it, get to where I'm at, bitch, right? Like, yeah. And so I think, sadly, for a long time, we rewarded yeah. organizations that behave that way. And we even came up with negative nicknames for those who were empathetic leaders. We used to call them Joe Huggers. Like, Oh, really? Oh, like, oh, how come you care that specialists, whoever is 
you know, he yeah, he's been late for formation. Counsel him, bust him down to E2 or whatever. It's like, well, he's late because, like... His, his wife divorced yeah, him or something. His wife just left him. He's been stuck with the kids. He's trying to figure out, like, CYS and how to get them enrolled in that. So he's trying to look for other health care or, you know, child care options. He's, you know, he's not able to get here at 630 because one person that he was able to find that he can afford, you know what I mean, is all the way on the other side of the town. So he's got to go do this. And it's like, I don't give a fuck. Give him his counseling statement. It's like, yeah. wow, you're an asshole, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you're a Joe hugger. It's like... Why? Because I have empathy, because I understand that there's context to everyone's actions and that not everyone is just a malicious piece of shit that just doesn't care about your formation times. Then maybe there's other things happening in people's lives that affect their ability to do this job effectively. And if we support them and we care about them and we try to give them options and we put them in contact with the resources, maybe they can not only take care of their own self and families better, but they will be a better asset to the team and to us if we just take that extra mile and take that extra step to do that. Um, and so I think because the army operated that way for a long time where we put down those who were overly empathetic or overly cared. Um, we have nicknames for them. Um, we rewarded those who, you know, just went hard in the paint all day, every day. Like, yeah, first one in last one out. You know what I mean? Like high and tight, go fast, run your two miles. Like, you know what I mean? Like we prioritized and put people on a pedestal for traits that really didn't matter and really weren't that important. And were actually kind of negative and counterproductive. Um, we're still feeling the trickle. We're still feeling the trickle down for that because yeah. those people haven't gotten. They they haven't gone away. Those no. people. Those they're people, in position of power right now. Those people are at the brigade and higher levels of leadership. Right. Those oh, people geez. are the O fives, O sixes, O sevens. Those people are the senior E eights, E nines. Right. At different echelons, like the the global war on terror generation that grew up in the same time of the army that I did. Right. Like they have gotten to positions where like they're used to that being what right is mm -hmm. and like anybody that's kind of you know straying from that you know they'll say things and you'll hear these kind of phrases where like oh it's this woke generation or oh these millennials are so entitled or oh they want this and it's like why because like they have they have feelings they have thoughts they they ask the question why do you want to know why they ask why it's not that they're just stop taking it personal, right? This is what I would always say to those kind of people. They're like, oh, this generation, they always you know, ask why, why this? Just shut up, you know, about face, move out, draw fire, right? It's like, well, they're asking you why because they're sentient beings with their own thoughts, ideas, and their own intellect, and they can contribute to the ideas, right? They can contribute to decisions. So they're asking you why because they want to contextualize and understand what it is that they're being asked to do, what the long-term goal of it is, what's the objective, so that maybe while they're doing the thing that you're telling them to do, if they encounter an issue or a problem because they understand why, they can adjust and make sure that your intent is met. You take it as disrespect that they're challenging you, that they're pushing back at you, that they, they don't believe that you know what you're doing and they're trying to have yeah. you explain to them and justify why they need to do it. It's like, stop being so personal, dog. Like, stop taking shit so personal. Don't be a bitch. Maybe they're asking you why because, like, it will help things get better. Yeah. Like, Respect their intelligence level. Respect that, yeah, generations just keep getting smarter, right? Like, we aren't the end-all, be-all of everything. Um, and so I think... When we get to a point where where those kinds of leaders and those kinds of soldiers are are considered normal, and we aren't still rewarding like negative behavior, things that's like, well, this is how the army does stuff, right? Like <laughs> think about like back in my day, it's like, well, okay, yeah, but it's back in your day, and things have changed because they're better now. Yeah. Like yesterday is not better than tomorrow. Like get over that shit. Um, things change. Institutions evolve. Like if we only cared about the way it was back in the day, somebody who looks like you and me wouldn't allow to be in the army. Yeah. Like things get better. So adapt, overcome things, you know, improve. And so, um, 
Yeah. So a long way of answering your question. I think toxicity breeds success and that happened for too long. And my hope is that as we move forward, the army will start to mature itself, push those kinds of people out and realize that the more that you care for people on an individual level, the better your organization does and the more of your mission you can accomplish. And you are really uh, one of the rare ones, to be honest. You are really one of the rare ones that actually gives a shit. We, we, we both know a couple yeah. of, a couple of uh, uh, leaders out there that actually do give a shit about their, uh, about their soldiers. But it's, it's suffice to say that you are definitely one of the rare ones that actually gives a shit and, and uh, really deeps, uh, dives, uh, dives deep into their soldiers' lives. Not just to be, not, not to be nosy or anything, just cause to show you care. Yeah. Um, as in true wet boots fashion, uh, I will go ahead and uh, wrap this up by asking you a couple questions. Okay. All right. So first question is, uh, what are your favorite rites of passage? Ooh, ooh, that's a wonderful euphemism for hazing. Um, well, mm. oh, that's dope. That's dope. Cool, 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 cool. Um, I think one of my <laughs> one of my favorite ones, um, you know, just to, to keep it kind of in the time period that we're we're discussing of, of my career, is new second lieutenants being welcomed into a platoon and having that like first kind of NCO interaction with your platoon sergeant. So. It, there's always kind of this understanding that like, okay, the first time that a platoon leader goes to the field with his platoon, some kind of shenanigans and fuckery are on deck, right? So a buddy of mine, um, he got like duct tape to his cot and they shaved his eyebrows, <laughs> right? Um, there's stories that I've heard of like, yeah, you know, guys that were, you know, tankers and stuff. Yeah, if you're in like, an you, a heavy armored unit, you get yeah. strapped to that fucking thing. To, yeah, to the gun, right? Like there's, so I think one of my favorite ones is... And, and, and the reason that, that I say it's like, oh, well, this sounds torturous for a fucking lieutenant, right? This sounds awful. Well, the, the story goes is that this only happens to you if they like you, right? Like okay. if you've been welcomed in. So it doesn't happen immediately day one, right? It's like, no, no, no. After some time, like, oh, okay, we like the new LT. Like, he's cool. We can fuck with him. And like, this will be fun. He's one of the boys, right? Or gals, right? Okay, yeah, let's like go do some like crazy shit to him, right? And like, this will be fun. He'll laugh. It's just kind of like for funsies. Um, and so, yes, the underlying meaning behind it is that you've been officially accepted and are like in the family now. You're not just the, because I mean, if you think about it, like this is insane. You have an entire platoon of people that have been trained in that profession way longer than you the have. person that's in charge, right? They have more experience in the army than that person that's now in charge of them. You're like in life on par with the E3s and the E4s. Like yeah. You're a 20 something. You're more of a peer with that specialist in your platoon than you are with the <laughs> platoon sergeant and the squad leaders. Yeah. Right. But somehow in the army, we make you in charge. Like you're the boss. So like, it's not normal that that should happen. And everybody's like, Oh sweet. we got a new LT. All hail LT. He knows all things. It's like, no, this motherfucker doesn't know shit. Right. So it does take time for you to kind of like build that credibility with your organization and to have them respect you and understand that like, yes, you know, you are our leader and you are the voice and the figurehead of this organization. We trust you. You trust us. We're going to move out and draw fire together. And so, yes, one of the rites of passage is yes, the obvious, um, uh, Messing with the the PL in some fashion, depending on the organization that you're in. Because if they don't fuck with you, then they don't, they don't fuck care. with you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're just another guy. They don't fuck with you. They don't let you. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, second question: What was your first moment of army suck? And mm. by that I mean like, when did you realize, fuck, maybe the army really does fucking suck? Yep. And it was a very simple and trivial thing, but it was it was about control. Um, I'm not a micromanager. I'm not a control freak, but 
that first day getting off the bus in basic training, <laughs> holding my holding my, <laughs> my stuff, being yelled at and screamed at, that part wasn't the big deal. I was like, dope, dope, dope. I'm getting yelled at, right? I've had like head coaches. If you watch Last Chance U, John Beam uh, is the one of the head coaches from that show on Netflix. He was my high school football coach. Oh, so I've, been, I've been yelled at and screamed at and like messed with, right? That wasn't a big deal. Having to piss and not being able to and not being able to control my own life and being able to be like, yo, okay, cool. I got it. We're all here. It's our first day. Welcome. Sweet. Army camp. Um, I got to go take a leak. So I'm just going to go do that real quick. Oh, like hell I was. Like I had to just sit in bleachers and contemplate like. I'm going to piss myself. I'm going to piss on myself. And as a grown ass man, I mean, obviously I was only, you know, just turned 18. So I'm not that grown. But like, I'm not a child. But. I don't have the ability to get up and walk to a very visible and clearly marked bathroom that is very close to where I'm sitting right now because another grown man is screaming at me and I don't have the ability to just get up and go do that. I'm going to explode. This sucks. I don't even know what he's saying. I've blacked out because I have to piss. And I think that was the first time that I was like, this is so uncomfortable and miserable. This is not normal life. I'm not in control of my own fucking faculties right now. Like, I can't even... Take a piss. A grown man decides when I go take a... This is terrible. What have I done? What have I just put myself in? So yes, that would be... And it was first day. First moment of Army Suck. Because it was that, oh shit. I can't even do the basics. Yeah. I, can't, I can't even go take a piss right now. I, I ended up... I, you know, Spoiler alert. I pissed on myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened. <laughs> it, it just... Yeah. That's, that's how it Oh, God. Oh, my God. That's uh-huh. fucking beautiful. Holy yep. shit. Uh, on the opposite, on the opposite side of that, uh-huh. what was your best moment in the army? Ooh, best moment in the army. Um, mm. Ooh, there's been so many. Um, having my my first team medic get accepted to the PA program, okay. and now he's a captain. So that was that was super awesome. Um, okay, yeah. I know one. There's been a few that personal ones, but I'll go with one that probably gave me the most pride. Um, while we were in Kandahar, there was like a little like Alexander the Great built like this little castle thing like behind our. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and so uh, we climbed it as a platoon because uh, two of the soldiers reenlisted, and they both asked me like to reenlist them, and so I was like, "Really?" And they're like, "Yes, yeah, sir." I was like, "I mean." It was literally during the time the company commander and like was with the squadron commander. They were doing battlefield circulation. I was like, "Do you want me to get one of them or like something?" He was like, "No, sir. No, we want it to be you." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, cool." And so I think I mean it sounds like a small little trivial thing, but I think that based on the experiences that they had had, and I knew the previous leadership that they had had, they came from other companies and stuff, and they came over. The fact that they wanted me to do it in the presence of plenty of other officers that they could have called. And like, especially during that moment, people would have driven out there to where we were at from CAF or from CNS or whatever, and like come and done it for them. Um, that they asked me to do it. That was probably one of the, you know, especially during the period of time that we're discussing. Um, yeah, definitely one of the proudest moments that I've had in the okay. army. Being selected to be, to, to reenlist a couple soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Awesome. Awesome. Um, what is one thing that you would change about the army? If you had a magic wand. Ooh, um, hmm. There's so many. Okay, yeah, the easiest one. I can go to diatribe on this uh, at some other point. Um, forcing soldiers to live in barracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody should get BAH. Mm-hmm. Everybody should have free choice to where they want to live. I think we treat 
barracks as if like soldiers aren't human and it's cool for me and big Sarge to just go kick in your door and go inspect your fridge, tell you that you're not supposed to have three bottles of alcohol. You can only have two. You need to have this many. Like, I think there's, there's plenty of senior folks that if I walked into their house right now, I'd be like, okay, you, your wife, your kids, you guys are all dirty and gross. Why is there human <laughs> shit on the floor? Um, your house is nasty. Why isn't there any food here? You guys are terrible parents. Why is it that we don't do this more often? It's like, sir, you can't just be coming to my house. But it's cool for you to go to a grown-ass man or woman's house in the bees and, like, treat them like peasants and children. That's where yeah. they live. Yeah. That's their home. Like, you don't, you don't get to just go in there and just go through their drawers and look through their fridge and, like, give them shit. Like, that's, that's their home. If you're going to go in there... Don't be disingenuous. Don't say we're doing health and welfare inspections. It's like, okay, I need you to bring the DPW with you. I need you to bring all the work orders. And so we're doing a real health and welfare, right? Let's talk about this mold. Let's talk about why this AC doesn't work. Let's go talk about like these tiles that are loose and right. Why is this faucet about to come off? Like, like let's talk about the health and welfare stuff of my house. You're in here really to inspect me. Like you are here to look under my bed, to go through my fridge, to count up the empty bottles and beer things in here. Ask me if I have a problem. You're here to like look through my shit and like give me a hard time. Like it's disingenuous. You don't really mean well for me. Like why do I even have to live here? Cause you're making me, I would rather go get an apartment. Like what the hell? So the fact that a brand new Lieutenant who's 22 is able to get BAH no matter what, they don't have to be married. Like officers get no. BAH no matter yeah. what. So some, 20, yeah, so some 22 year old, can get BAH and just go live in an apartment on their own, and we just trust that that's okay. But a 22-year-old E4 can't just get BAH and go do the same thing? And that's why soldiers marry strippers. But... (laughs) Wow! (laughs) (laughs) But he's not. (laughs) Jesus! I mean, yeah, and, and that's why everybody's like, it's a fight to get the hell out of the bees. And but, so you have, but in reality, that's why that's why you see so many fucking dudes fucking marrying strippers, yeah. marrying their own buddies, to yeah. be honest. Just to get out of there. Yeah. Because they want to be treated like normal adults and humans with their own apartment, their own stuff, their own space. Yeah. Freedom from work. Um, so, yeah, so if I could change one thing in the Army, it would be giving everyone BAH, no matter what your rank. If you choose to live in the barracks, that's a choice that you're making, um, but it's not mandatory. You can, you know, we'll give you BAH and you can go figure out. If I expect you as an 18-year-old to have a machine gun in your hand and know when to shoot somebody and when not, you mean I don't trust you to also know how to grocery shop and how to budget and how to life plan? I feel like as a leader, it's maybe my job to help you understand those things. So saying like, well, I don't trust these young kids to go off and do that. It's like kids live in, you know, on their own in college all the time. Yeah. Like, like what, why, why are they 18 year olds that are somehow like incompetent and incapable of like paying a gas bill and a water bill? I'm sure they could figure it out and maybe like big Sarge should help them. And if not, to, well then guess what? You get kicked back to the bears. And then you go back to the bees cause yeah. it was a failed experiment, right? Like I, I think choice should be given to soldiers. So if I could change anything in the army, the elimination of mandatory barrack stuff, everybody gets BAH. I like that. I like that. Um, what advice would you give to to the young who was out there? To the, to the young enlisted and the young officer who was out there? Um, sometimes the best answer to a question is another question. Uh, shut your mouth and open your ears more. Um, you can learn from anybody of any rank at any time. Um, observe and watch more than you try to decide and do. I think with with those things in mind, I think they all kind of get back to like, you don't know all the things all the time. You can learn from everyone. And the more that you do that, the more fruitful your life will be, the more rewarding your experience will be. Um, and you'll enjoy the army as an institution more. You'll enjoy the people that you come across more. Um, if you kind of open yourself up to learning, knowing and like hearing and truly seeing other people. 
There you go. I like that. Very last question. Yeah. Knowing everything that you know now, yeah. would you choose the same path all over again? Absolutely. Hell yeah. Wouldn't change like a damn thing about it. Hell yeah. That's what I'm fucking talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Well, Neil, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. You've had an extensive career and we haven't even gotten to like the bigger portions of it. So we'll definitely have to do a part two. I'm down. Yeah. We're there's still the, the we're definitely CA experience. Yeah. We got like another decade to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause we only got like 10, 11 yeah. years into yeah, it. We 10, we're definitely going to have a part two. Um, in true with boots fashion, I usually do this off, off mic cause you can't really see this cause, uh, my fucking camera guy just fucking quit the other day. So I can't zoom in, but, uh, I'll go, <laughs> I'll go ahead. And these unions are hard to negotiate with. You know what I mean? I understand. You know, they're, they're. I'll go ahead and present you with these two uh, wet boot stickers that are only available for our guests. Here you oh, go. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so, so much, much for coming on the podcast. Oh, yeah. uh, tell the people uh, where they can find you, whether it be Feet Finder, OnlyFans, and Grinder, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, um, due to an exercise that I'm participating in soon, I had to get rid of the uh, the Grinder and the Feet Finder accounts. Damn. Um, yeah. Uh, but actually, I don't really do the medias, but I do have a Twitter account that I started a long time ago because of sports. So you can find me at foul underscore Neil F A L underscore Neil if you care to um, have banter about usually sports and you know if you want to talk about the Warriors and boxing and things. So the warriors suck anyways wow well uh thank you for joining us it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast it's an honor and a pleasure to have uh somebody of your knowledge and of your background on the podcast and like i said we'll have to do a part two uh soon um anything else that you want do you want to sign off with no, this has been this has been a lot of fun, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, to another opportunity to do it for part two. Hell yeah, it's gonna be so much fun. We, oh, yeah. we gonna have a lot of fun. Don't worry about it. I like it. Uh, thank you for so much for coming on the podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Join, uh, follow us on uh, on Instagram at wetboots underscore pod, and on TikTok at wetbootspod.com or whatever it is. Uh, Send us your emails at wetbootspod at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you.